Hey folks, thanks for joining me on Ultra Habits. I'm your host, RJ Singh. My show is dedicated to all things executive. Here, we understand the unique challenges of executive life and the things that will no doubt come up in your business and personal life that have the potential to impact you negatively. On this show, we interview the world's top minds from the fields of business, medical, military, sports, the sciences, academia, and much, much more. Our goal is to leave you after every episode with more knowledge, wisdom, and awareness that ultimately help you improve your habits and move you and keep you at peak performance. Enjoy. And again, folks, thanks for joining me. Should exercise be the first course of action for people with mental health issues? According to recent research by Dr. Ben Singh and his team at the University of South Australia, physical exercise is 1.5 times more effective than medication or counseling. So for many, this is obvious. The problem is that the people that generally need to be moving their body the most to change their mental health aren't the ones doing it. There is a benefit in counseling and at certain times medication is required. But the question needs to be asked is how can we get those with mental health issues to implement consistent exercise regime in their lives? The exercise solution to our mental health issues are always available and the consistent benefits can have a profound effect on our short-term and long-term lives. Enjoy the episode, folks. Ben, welcome to Ultra Habits, man. The, uh, the audience obviously would know, but this is our second attempt at recording. So hopefully we get through without any technical issues, man. But welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. You could have just left that bit out and they wouldn't have known. <laughs> I know, I know, but I feel like I always got to let them know what's happening. They, they, uh, they know that I've had technical issues in the past. We've improved this show uh, much, much more uh, in the sense that we don't usually have any, but yeah, we still get them from time to time. But welcome back, man. It's really good to have you. Now, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah. So, so Ben, I came across your, your article that was published in, I think the British Journal, in a British Journal. I actually came across it on one of the posts of a friend of mine, Joe DeSena, the founder of Spartan. And you know, it was talking about the powerful effect of exercise and more importantly, how exercise could significantly reduce mental health issues such as depression. And I knew I had to get you on the show to talk about the study. But before we dive into the study, why did you actually look to do this study? Like, what, you know, give us the backstory. Yeah, so I think particularly people who exercise and are physically active. I think everyone knows that being active and exercising is good for their mental health. And there is plenty of evidence out there, but we're still at a point where exercise still isn't integrated uh, as a standard component of care, uh, particularly across a lot of countries. And so we thought because there's so much evidence out there, then often it's difficult to make sense of it all. Um, so we wanted to try and compile all the evidence into one nice report and try to evaluate everything that's been done, looking at all the different types of exercise across sort of the main uh, mental health conditions. And so there has been some good previous reviews that have been done, but often we found that they might focus on evaluating depression, for example. 
uh, and only look at one type of exercise. So they might evaluate the effects of aerobic exercise on depression. And that's important research, but often it sort of doesn't give us the ability to compare the effects of aerobic exercise to resistance exercise or yoga. So we wanted to try to compile all the evidence that's out there in one sort of single paper. Why do you think exercise hasn't been integrated into treatment? I mean, I, I would think it's obvious for many of those that, you know, many of those of us that move our bodies. And I mean, I think it's, it doesn't take a rocket science just to, to you know, to, to know that through moving our bodies, it shifts our mindset. Like, why do you think this isn't currently integrated into care? Yeah, it's a difficult question. So I think if we think about a lot of doctors or a lot of GPs, a lot of them may have just received limited training in prescribing exercise to their patients. And often, for example, thinking of GPs, if their training uh, and all their previous experience has been about providing pharmaceutical approaches to depression, then that's probably always going to be their bias. So if they're seeing a patient that presents with, that's just been diagnosed with depression, they might sort of Despite their best intentions, their bias might be towards what their training is, which typically is pharmaceutical approaches. And then often just as um, sort of a comment, they might tell their patients, oh, on top of that, um, you need to become more physically active or just give them some basic recommendations. And just giving those recommendations probably in a lot of cases isn't enough, particularly if the patient or the individual doesn't have a previous exercise, of uh, previous history of exercise. They've been inactive their whole life, or maybe they've had some negative experiences with exercising in their past. So just sort of, uh, they sort of require that maybe prescribed, individualized, one-on-one support from an exercise professional. And I think if we also put ourselves in the shoes of someone who might be experiencing depression, for example, often a lot of the common symptoms are severe fatigue. So often they struggle to get out of bed in the morning. They lack motivation to do their daily tasks, such as have a shower and make themselves breakfast. So if they're struggling to get out of bed, then exercise is probably the last thing that they want to be doing. So it's difficult as well from that perspective. So there's a whole range of different uh, reasons as to why sort of um, it hasn't been integrated. But I think the research is there and we are sort of moving in the right direction in terms of understanding the importance of exercise for mental health and also slowly trying to recommend it to individuals with mental health conditions. This may be a controversial question, but it's an obvious question. I mean, and it's something that you may not want to really comment on, but do you think there's an agenda with kind of, you know, pharmaceutical products? Yeah, I think, like I said, I sort of touched on it. It is difficult because I think if we put ourselves back into the shoes of someone with depression who's never exercised before, who struggles to get out of bed, if they've got the option between doing 30 minutes of exercise a day or taking some medications, they're probably going to lean towards the medications just because, like I said, they've got no previous history of exercise. Maybe they don't enjoy it or they think that it's not for them. And yeah, I think I sidestepped your question a little bit, which shows what my thoughts are. I think it's a difficult question and I think there has become more and more awareness in the past. So there are a lot of GPs out there that try to do, that are doing a fantastic job trying to recommend their patients to be more physically active. But I think it's more than just providing them that recommendation. They really need that additional support because if they haven't been active up until now, they really, really, we need to find out what are the barriers, what's stopping them from being in, uh, active. 
what additional support can we give them? Is it sort of um, greater access to exercise facilities or um, free vouchers so they can go to their local swimming pool, whatever it might be? Yeah. And I mean, to the point that you just raised around, you know, if someone's suffering from depression, they may not have the will to even get off the couch or, or out of bed. Like, how do we then take that into consideration? Like, if 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 someone's unwilling to, or they don't have the willpower wherewithal to get off that couch or get out of bed to, to move their body, like, what do you think the answer is to that? Because in the study, it actually shows that physical activity is 1.5 times more effective than counseling or medications. Like, is the recommendation that you know, exercise is done in conjunction with counseling. Like, how do we actually start to shift these people enough to, to get off the couch or, or out of the bed? Like, what's the answer there? Yeah, so we certainly don't want people getting the message to think that the paper suggests that exercise should replace other treatments such as medications and counseling, because we do know that medications and counseling do provide tremendous benefits to a lot of people worldwide. But in saying that, there are a lot of people that don't benefit from medications um, and might experience a lot of side effects as well. So, yeah, you raised a good point is that we don't want to exercise to replace these other treatments. Mm. We want it to be offered in addition to or alongside those treatments. So um, a GP, instead of just solely relying on maybe prescribing a pharmaceutical approach, maybe just suggesting some medications and then also exercise as well as part of a comprehensive treatment plan. Mm. So it's definitely something that needs to be worked with on an individual basis. And I think in terms of trying to integrate exercise or physical activity into the individual's lives, I think often it can be daunting because people often think of the guidelines of 150 minutes a week. But we know if people who are physically inactive, the greatest benefits they can get is going from being inactive to just doing a little bit, and even if it isn't meeting the guidelines. So I think just starting off with very small steps. So it might be um, walking to the mailbox every day um, and then over time maybe trying to progress up to a 10-minute walk a day and then maybe in the future aiming for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I think if we try to prescribe too much or a high-intensity exercise straight away, then it's often very difficult. So just starting off with a small amount is probably the best way to begin. So any little activity and then just build on that over time. Is there any research or in your opinion, do you think that people that are inactive or that don't really move their bodies, they don't exercise in any way, shape, or form, do you think that could actually lead to depression and other mental illnesses, like a lack of movement? Yeah, so there is some interesting research that's been done that has looked at people over time, and they've found that people who basically meet the physical activity guidelines are sort of 15 to 30% less likely to develop depression and that's just from going from sort of not meeting the guidelines to meeting the national guidelines of, in most parts of the world, it's 150 minutes a week. And uh, it's an interesting question because it is a little bit of the chicken of chicken and the egg question. What sort of comes first? Are they inactive because they are depressed or sort of other way around? So is it sort of one causing the other? And I think there's enough sort of good quality evidence from randomized control trials, which is sort of the gold standard when trying to uh, test and intervention. So uh, good quality study design. There's a lot of evidence from um, those designs that shows that physical activity can sort of help reduce symptoms of depression. And we certainly know that people who are inactive are more likely to develop 
symptoms of depression in the future. So I think that's really, really highlights the power, how powerful exercise is. So it doesn't necessarily need to be going to a high intensity exercise class or a structured exercise prescription, just doing your best to meet the physical activity guidelines of a range of different exercises or a range of different physical activities can not just help people who are experiencing depression, but also healthy adults who don't currently experience any symptoms of depression. It can help reduce the onset of depression in the future. That's interesting. So Ben, within your research or any other known research that you may know of, have you found any connection between physical exercise and substance abuse? No, so it's something that we didn't particularly look at in our review, um, but we know that, I mean, exercise, it's just the list of benefits of exercise is quite endless. Mm-hmm. So we know that people who do exercise are less likely to ex- sort of be diagnosed with mental health conditions, and that might sort of um, have a carry-on effect in other aspects of sort of improving their lifestyles. Mm-hmm. So it's an area that I'm less familiar with mm-hmm. um, in terms of specifically looking at substance abuse. And we chose not to focus on it uh, in our review uh, as well. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm in 12-step recovery and I know that, you know, I've always been an extremely physical person. And then when my addiction took over, that obviously stopped. But when I did get sober, you know, running and movement became a massive part of my recovery. Like it was a requirement. Like particularly at those times of the day that I would go out drinking, which was in the evenings, I would go out for massively long runs. I mean, yeah, I was still smoking 30 cigarettes a day, but, you know, I got to that later. But, you know, it just, it it feels intuitive in the sense that there is uh, some level of connection. And I know as an ultra endurance runner, you know, in our community, there's a lot of people that are super intense, highly addictive, and in many ways, they're switching one addiction for another, but it is the lesser of the evil. And, you know, by anchoring themselves in, in that level of physical movement, you can then deal with the addiction and, and the psychological stuff and the stuff that's going on under the hood. I find um, people that stabilize their recovery with addiction through physical movement have then the space to then go, you know, under the bonnet to then figure out the causes and conditions because they get that baseline right, yeah? Yeah, it's an important point. And it, like you said, it, I think it really highlights the potency of exercise and how important it is. Because when once people start exercising and they sort of get themselves into a structured routine, um, then it really helps with discipline in other parts of their life. Mm-hmm. Particularly, for example, if someone does a workout in the morning, then they might think, oh, I want to sort of, I need to sort of be switched on for the rest of the days just so I don't undo all my hard work. So um, by being active, it makes them aware of other aspects of their lifestyle to help sort of complement and make mm. sure they maximize the benefits. So I think that's extremely common. And I've even noticed it myself. I feel like just the days where I exercise are the days where it really leads to discipline in other parts of my life. Whereas if I feel like if I'm going to miss a workout, then sometimes those thoughts sort of creep in. Oh, I've missed my workout. I can slack off a bit with my diet. I can sort of, you know, maybe do some other things that probably aren't the best for my health. So I think that's really, really highlights the potency and how important exercise is, is that it sort of often for a lot of individuals, it's that glue that keeps the rest of their day together. And by being active, they want to improve their fitness. They want to maybe improve their running time or their endurance or their strength. 
So they try to find other things that can help sort of achieve that goal. So often it leads to them improving their diet, improving their sleep, cutting out alcohol, cutting out cigarettes. So really, I think it also highlights how difficult it is to sort of summarize the benefits of exercise, given the effect it has in so many other parts of an individual's life. How important is structure to good mental health? Yeah, in terms of specifically of exercise, so when we found that a lot of the studies, the studies that were the most effective at improving anxiety and depression are the ones that involved a structured exercise routine. So for example, the individuals needed to exercise three times a week for 60 minutes on those days, and they had the intensity and the workouts sort of set. So they sort of knew what they were doing rather than just telling someone, um, I'll be more physically active, try to achieve 150 minutes a week, then that often sort of doesn't give anyone sort of specific requirements on what they need to do. So that structure, just looking at a lot of the studies that we reviewed, did sort of appear to be an important factor because um, often it gives you the ability to monitor what you've done. So if you set yourself a workout of um, 30 minutes at a certain heart rate, or if you're lifting weights, You've got your exercises laid out and the sets and the reps that you need to do. Um, it sort of just really provides you with that opportunity to monitor what you've done over time. In your studies, like what kind of time frame did you guys find it, it took to really shift the needle in someone's mental health in terms of exercise? Yeah, so the evidence suggests that about 12 weeks is when the optimal benefits in mental health occur so specifically depression and anxiety and the effects tended to diminish longer term so after that and i think the key thing is we don't want people to get the wrong message in thinking that they just need to exercise for 12 weeks and then they can stop because we know if they do stop after the 12 weeks then their mental health can deteriorate again so uh, we think the reason why those sort of 12-week interventions showed a greater effect than sort of the year-long interventions is often there was a lot of people or a lot of the exercise intervention in, in the year-long studies weren't very progressive. So they sort of had the same intensity or the same duration for up to a year. And we know with exercise, we want it to be progressive. We want to try to um, sort of increase the duration or um, increase yeah. the repetitions of the weight that we're lifting. So, and also we know we don't want people to just, just because the evidence sort of said 12 weeks was the optimal mental health benefits. We know that there are a lot of additional benefits of being active long-term. So, for example, um, reductions in the risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, changes in body composition often take a little bit longer. So, again, just because the evidence suggests that 12 weeks is the optimal benefits, really we want people to be exercising long-term to continue to see benefits uh, as well. And I think it's another important point there is that um, so the evidence suggests 12 weeks, but I think we've all experienced days where we're feeling stressed or we've got a lot on our plate and then we've gone out and done a bout of exercise and then immediately after, we've seen an immediate noticeable improvement in our mood or our stress or our anxiety. So I think particularly people who are active, they know how good it makes them feel on a day-to-day basis. So again, the benefits can be experienced straight away, so straight after a bout of exercise. Um and continued over the longer term as well. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, Ben, because uh, people try to ask me, you know, about a magic number when it comes to habits. And, you know, people talk about 21 days, blah, blah, blah. And 
I, I think it's too subjective, but people will uh, ask me in particularly uh, about sobriety and, you know, how long have you typically experienced that people need to, to kind of stay sober to develop the habit of sobriety. And 90 days seems to be it for me. Like when I see people get to that 90 day time frame, it feels like they start to shift. Like there's enough time and there's enough habit formation and structure that in my view and in my experience will help them get to that year mark. So I think I find that quite interesting that, you know, it does align with your studies in terms of, you know, exercise in 12 weeks. In terms of the the research that you did, was there any kinds of particular mental health issues that were focused on or any demographic of individual that was focused on? Yeah, we looked at a wide range of individuals. So we included all studies, no matter what their diagnosis was. And there was quite a range. So there were studies that involved women with breast cancer, uh, HIV, AIDS, COPD, so sort of lung disease, older adults. Uh, and basically, we saw large benefits in all those populations, particularly individuals who have been diagnosed with a uh, life-changing condition such as HIV, AIDS, cancer, uh, dementia as well. And I think the reason why we saw such large benefits in those populations is just taking cancer, for example. If we think about someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer, it's quite a stressful and difficult time for them emotionally. And that can often lead to large increases in sort of the symptoms of depression or anxiety that they might be feeling. And even amongst those individuals, we saw quite large benefits in exercise, helping to improve their mental health, which really shows the sort of potency and how important exercise is, like quite a wide range of individuals can benefit from it. And a point that we sort of touched on earlier is that where there was also large benefits in healthy adults who ha who don't have a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. So that's quite an important finding because it, I think a lot of people experience days where they might be feeling a bit down or just not themselves, or if they've got a lot going on in their work or their personal lives, they just have days or periods where they're not feeling mentally um, themselves. And even though they haven't been diagnosed with a mental health condition, the evidence suggests that one of the best things they can do is just be active during those periods. And I think an important point is that if someone is going through a lot of stress or a lot of um, turmoil, then probably one of the last things they're probably thinking of doing is fitting in some exercise. It's probably quite low down on their sort of list of priorities, but really just even finding 10 minutes or 15 minutes to get out, go for a run or go out for a walk uh, is extremely beneficial to mental health. So I think just because an individual um, or an individual doesn't necessarily need to be diagnosed with depression or anxiety for exercise to be beneficial to their mental health. So you guys were, were able in your study to uncover that physical exercise helped benefit, let's say, people that had cancer in terms of their, 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 their mental state. Is there any evidence that suggests that people that have cancer are more likely to survive when they have a positive mental state? The positive mental state, I'm sort of less aware of, but uh, in terms of their physical activity, so we know that being physically active can first reduce your risk of many common cancers, such as breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and prostate cancer. And also, there's a lot of evidence to show that 
being exercise, being physically active and exercising after your diagnosis. So uh, it doesn't matter if the individual was physically inactive before they were diagnosed. Once they've been diagnosed, if they can start exercising, then exercise is associated with improved survival for um, various reasons, but it can help them sort of tolerate the treatments a lot more and it can help sort of them manage a lot of their side effects of particularly chemotherapy. So in terms of the positive, whether it improves their sort of positive outlook and whether that improves survival, I'm less familiar with that research, but in terms of the direct effect of exercise in helping improve survival after a cancer diagnosis, there's a lot of emerging evidence which shows that uh, exercise is one of the most powerful things they can do to help their survival. I'll be subjective. I think we could agree that exercise would improve, you know, anyone's state of mind, particularly someone that's going through something as traumatic as is is a cancer diagnosis. It, it, you're right. Like in terms of the the types of exercise, what did you guys look at in this study? Like, what was a range of varied uh, exercise styles and types? Yeah, there was a large mix. So most commonly, most of the studies evaluated walking which I think is understandable because it's the most easy to evaluate. Um, it's easy to recommend if you were running a study with 100 people, it's easy to sort of provide them with a recommendation of go for a 30-minute walk uh, around your neighborhood three times or five times a week. So walking was the most common, uh, but there was a wide range of different aerobic exercises. So walking, cycling was another common one. Um, there was resistance exercise as well. So that was a mix of sort of individual supervised one-on-one sessions um, with an instructor and also group-based resistance exercise as well. So a wide range of aerobic exercises, a wide range of resistance exercises. And also we found a lot of the recent evidence, or there's a lot of new evidence looking at sort of the mind-body types of exercises, such as yoga, Pilates, and Tai Chi. So there's quite a lot of evidence looking at the benefits of those exercises on mental health. And also there were a lot of studies that involved just a mix of different exercises. So a bit of aerobic, a bit of resistance, and maybe some uh, stretching. Um, And there were some other common uh, other activities, um, less so structured exercise. So maybe um, dancing and other sort of sports as well. But I guess in terms of the the effects of the different types of exercise, overall, basically any activity that gets the body moving was shown to be beneficial. So um, that was quite an... Uh, I guess it was, it's to be expected, but when we did sort of take a bit of a deeper dive into the evidence, we found that specifically when looking at resistance exercise, um, that was the most effective for depression in particular. And the mind-body types of exercises such as yoga, they tended to have the greatest sort of um, effect on anxiety. So helping to relieve um, symptoms of anxiety that people might be experiencing. Yeah, it's interesting uh I, I I do both and I tend to vary uh, my exercises week to week and I definitely find different types of exercises give me different things, right? Like I've been doing lots and lots of burpees, which isn't fun and, you know, gives you limited yeah. joy and mm-hmm. I've been really craving runs lately. So yesterday I went for a run. I'll go for a run today because I just kind of need to be back out in nature, be out in the wild on my own. I like to go run at night and there's a certain release and sense of well-being that comes from a run that I mean, just may not get from a different form of exercise. So I think it's really, you know, important that we vary our movement if we can and we do what we yeah. love, what what feels good to us, not necessarily someone else, yeah. right? Yeah. 
So, uh, if the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I think yeah. I'll just touch on that a bit. I think it is an important point because I think the question is less so what is the most effective type of exercise mm-hmm. rather than what does the individual prefer? Yeah. Because as you mentioned, we know that there's unique benefits for each type of exercise. So I think we probably should be moving away from that thinking that we need to prescribe one type of exercise and they need to be doing that. It really needs to be a mix and so maybe aerobic exercise a few days a week a couple of days a week of lifting weights and then maybe some other activities that they enjoy. So again, I think the question is less so what is the most effective and sort of trying to shift towards what does the individual prefer and what do they enjoy as well? Because we know we want people to be exercising long-term and we know mm-hmm. the greatest predictor of long-term adherence is whether they enjoy uh, the activity or not. So it really needs to be something that they, uh, like you mentioned, that they sort of enjoy, that they benefit from and that they get a sense of sort of fulfillment and enjoyment from as well. Yeah. So according to the World Health Organization, one in every eight people worldwide live with a mental disorder. And I think poor mental health costs the world economy about $2.5 trillion a year. It costs projected to rise to $6 trillion by 2030. In Australia, an estimated one in five people aged 16 to 85 experienced a mental disorder in the past 12 months. So we have these staggering numbers and statistics, and we have this wonderful study that you guys have done. How do we then start to shift, I suppose, care and in, in the way that we, we manage, you know, mental health disorders? Like, how do we take your study and, and actually start to impact the environment yeah i think that's sort of the hard part now because we sort of did the easy part with the research i think it's sort of identifying like i said before the research is out there now it's about identifying sort of why aren't individuals with mental health conditions why aren't they active is it because they've had uh, negative experiences with um physical activity and exercise when they were young um and also trying to identify what sort of greater resources or support can we provide them? So is it that they need sort of greater access to maybe gyms or um, one-on-one support as well? So greater access to maybe an exercise physiologist um, and thinking of ways we can sort of integrate it uh, into practice uh, as well. So I think that sort of comes around trying our best to educate sort of the medical community about the benefits of any importance of exercise for mental health. Um, Because as I said, if they've got a bias and they've sort of um, if they're used to treating their patients with pharmaceutical approaches, just providing more education around how important exercise can be and making sure that they sort of refer them onto maybe an exercise physiologist or someone else who can provide that individualized uh, support as well. And also, so we touched on earlier that the guidelines state that people need to be doing 150 minutes a week. But again, I think that's unachievable for a lot of people who have never exercised before so trying to make it more um sort of achievable for people who have never exercised before so just telling them that they perhaps can only start or should only start with maybe a small amount of days so 10 minutes a day and then over time trying to meet the guidelines so trying to meet them where they're at and in terms of not sort of giving them an a goal that might be a bit too unrealistic for those individuals in practice, Ben, how does it work where, you know, as a researcher, you publish this information? How do how does it typically happen in terms of uptake from the, the medical community? Do you guys lobby 
the medical community? Like, how does the medical community adapt all this body of knowledge that people like yourself are publishing? Yeah, that's another challenge. So I think that's mm. why we're sort of educating sort of GPs or the medical community around the benefits. So trying to get the paper or the research out there as much as possible, trying to do sort of community seminars or seminars to groups of GPs as well, where you're sort of providing them with the most up-to-date evidence, because often they're extremely busy and they have, they're sort of so focused on keeping up their training in their specific fields, they don't have time to read. Uh, research papers on exercise or any other additional treatment. So I think that's why podcasts like this are so uh, important as well, just being able to um, share the research findings um, to a um, sort of wider audience and also to maybe individuals who uh, maybe a lay audience as well who sort of don't typically read scientific journal papers. But again, it's a challenging question. Um, I wish I had an easy answer for you, but um, I think the best we can sort of do is do the research, do our best to um, spread the information that we found uh, and trying to sort of um, slowly, slowly try to build the message. It's interesting. I've got a friend in, in the US who he he's a fitness guy. Um, he's, an, he's an MD and his whole thing is about the fitness community trying to work with doctors as equals, more so around managing pain and physical pain and in in that vein maybe you know working with the fitness industry to start to lobby kind of the 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 medical agenda because the fitness industry has weight and leverage right like in in if you get the right kind of people behind i suppose the the, the studies maybe it creates more visibility in the news and in, you know, I don't know, in, in the community to, to start to drive that change across the board. I, I don't know, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting challenge. It's definitely an interesting challenge. But I feel like a lot of that support from sort of the fitness community is there. Cause I think a lot of them are sort of aware of how beneficial, beneficial exercise is, and they always do a good job at promoting sort mm-hmm. of the, not just the physical benefits of exercise, but the mental yeah. benefits i think like you said the challenge the challenge is sort of inf- infiltrating into that sort of medical mm-hmm. community and trying to make a change there yeah yeah no my, my mate has you know it's a gatekeeped place mm-hmm. right like you've got highly educated yeah. doctors that have studied a long time and you know obviously yeah. they've received these degrees and you know they feel yep. that maybe the way that they do things and what they know is the right way and to try to shift that is it's 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 a challenge and it's it's a challenge in any space when you're trying to create change yeah. so you know my hat's off yeah. to you and in, into the cause yep. that you're you guys are embarking on yeah but i think just on that i think there are still like uh, pockets of uh, gps and sort of doctors around that do a fantastic job at promoting the benefits of not just exercise but lifestyle changes you- and shifting away from maybe other approaches such as pharmaceutical approaches so I think there definitely are individuals out there who are doing a great job, but I think it's sort of the a very small proportion of them. Yeah. Well, Ben, we'll start to land the plane there. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Really enjoyed having you on. We always ask a couple questions before we go. One question yep. is, you know, say someone is just starting out on the journey of, of fitness and they're looking at, you know, shifting their state of mind. You know, what are some easy habits that they can start to embrace to be able to create some of that shift, to start to become more physical? 
Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is to just aim for a small amount each day. So don't necessarily try to uh, achieve the guidelines, particularly if you've never been active. So even starting off with 10 minutes a day and do something you enjoy or that's something that can be easily fit into your lifestyle. So it um, could be riding a bike, uh, it could be sports. So um, surfing, jiu-jitsu, doesn't necessarily need to be a structured exercise intervention, but find something you enjoy and just aim for a small amount each day and try to sort of build on that. So I always sort of bring up 10 minutes is a perfect place to begin. And then over time, you can sort of try to uh, reach towards 30 minutes and then maybe 60 minutes. But remembering there's never a rush with exercise and it's not a race. Mm. It's excellent, excellent advice. But where can our audience learn more about yourself and your study and what you're doing? Yeah, so the study was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, but um, I've got a Twitter account, which I sort of go through periods where I'm active and less active on there, depending on uh, what else I've got going on. But that's just at Ben Singh, PhD, uh, at Twitter. So yeah, you can find me and connect with me on there. We'll share all those details. You're also on LinkedIn, aren't you, Ben? Yeah, I'm shocking on LinkedIn, so probably not the best place to get me. <laughs> Got to get your act together, man. Got to get your act together. We're LinkedIn people. <laughs> yeah, um, that's sort of a goal for the next sort of uh, few months is to get, get more active on LinkedIn. And then if you want to sort of connect on email or afterwards, then uh, we can sort of happy to have a chat. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. No problems. Thanks. Hey, folks. Thanks for joining me on this episode. With all the options out there, I am super grateful that you spent time with me. I hope that you've received value from this conversation. And if you have, I've achieved my goal. Your support is really appreciated. If you really, really like the show or you want me to know how we can make it better, please do leave a review letting me know and the world know your thoughts. Yeah. If you want to know more about Ultra Habits and what we're doing, go to www.ugventures.com. Co. Sign up for the quiz. You'll get some really good insights into the archetype in terms of your habits and how you can improve your habits in your business and in your life. You'll also get a weekly newsletter with some blogs, episode updates. I promise you we do not spam. I absolutely hate spam and I think it's super unprofessional. It's all about value. So anyways, folks, until the next episode, have a great week. Take care.